So in this episode of Investors and Operators, I sit down with Stephen Cook, Managing Partner of LFM Capital. Stephen, awesome to have you on here. I would love to know just kind of the high level of what is LFM, what do, what do you do there? And then we can rewind just to kind of hear your, your life story leading up to it. Yeah, sure. So LFM Capital is a fairly new private equity firm. We were founded in 2014. We're currently deploying our second fund. Uh, we invest in U.S. and Canadian manufacturing companies between $3 million and $15 million in EBITDA. And I would say our key differentiator is that, uh, honestly, first of all, the, the firm is basically run by an operating partner, uh, and we have strong uh, operating skills at the partner level throughout the firm. So let's rewind. And, you know, where are you from? How did you get to where you're at? And, you know, what, what, was, what was the first job? Like, let's, let's, let's dive into some of these stories. Uh, I am from New York. I uh, grew up uh, just about an hour north of New York City, born in Long Island. Um, you know, I would say, if, if just looking at my upbringing, my dad uh, founded his own uh, electrical engineering company. Uh, I would say much more of a technical person than really a business person. Um, and so our family went from, uh, you know, pretty good wealth, I'd say upper middle class to uh, not so good wealth based on uh, kind of what was going on in, in, in his company. Um, literally, my mom, uh, when I was younger, went from uh, being a maid and I would go around and help her uh, clean homes uh, to we had a maid. Uh, and we went from uh, eating hot dogs multiple times in a week to having lobster. So it was definitely up and down. Oh, man. Uh, I would say uh, that kind of ultimately led me to decide that I wanted um, to go to a service academy. Um, you know, I, I definitely had a patriotic element to that, but a big part of that was also just guaranteeing that my education could be paid for. Uh, my sister is two years older. And at one point we, um, the family had to kind of pull her out of school for a semester just for financial reasons. So I just figured if, if we're struggling to get one through college, getting two through college is, is going to be a lot harder. Um, and so ended up uh, attending the Naval Academy uh, and earning an electrical engineering degree there, uh, same field as my father. Uh, and then when I graduated, I decided to go into aviation. Uh, so went through uh, flight school, uh, selected jets, and then ultimately uh, was a bombardier navigator on an A-6. Um, flew uh, the A-6 for four years off the USS America, and then did two years in a test squadron uh, in the middle of the Mojave Desert uh, before I got out of the service in 96. Uh, wow, I, I could ask a, a lot of questions on the family, the family business, everything, but let's let's keep on going, we, then we can rewind. Sure. Um, yeah, so when I got out of the service, uh, I, I knew I, I really didn't have a, a good sense of what I wanted to do outside the Navy. Our first child was born uh, when we were in the middle of the Mojave Desert. And so that was really the primary motivation to get out was I had spent uh, over 18 months out at sea on the USS America. Uh, there was one year where out of the 365 days, I was home for 37 days. Ironically, that was when we were trying to conceive. So you can imagine that didn't go <laughs> real well. Um, and so just uh, decided 
mostly for family reasons, you know, to get out. I, I absolutely love the flying. I love the people. I loved everything about the Navy except for the, the long deployments. Um, and so decided I want to go to graduate school. Um, really had no idea what, you know, where or how or why. I ended up taking the GMAT, uh, which is kind of like the SAT for business school. And honestly, really surprised myself. I did quite well on it. Uh, I took it uh, on an aircraft carrier with somebody chipping paint above me. Uh, so not, not the best environment in the world. Um, and I just decided to apply to the top five business schools. Um, and I, one of those was MIT Sloan. And they sent me a letter in the mail that said, hey, you look like a great candidate for this special program we ha have called Leaders for Manufacturing. And oh, by the way, it's a full scholarship with a stipend. And so coming out of the Navy, you can imagine I didn't have a lot of money saved up. And so getting paid to go to college seemed really attractive. Sound like a fantastic uh, idea. <laughs> yeah, great idea. And so uh, I ended up applying to that program and, and being admitted. It's about 48 students a year. Um, it's a dual degree program where you simultaneously earn a master's in engineering and an MBA. You spend about 18 months on campus and about six and a half months at one of the partner companies um, kind of trying to solve a real world problem for them. And you ultimately write a, a dual thesis on that problem that you help solve. Um, very intense academic program. I would say honestly, harder than my plebe year at the Naval Academy, which is a really high bar for suck. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I would literally leave the apartment at seven in the morning, uh, get back at around 11 at night. At this point, we had two kids under two. Um, we literally went from living in a four bedroom house on a, on a Navy base on, an, on a, a golf course to a 700 square foot uh, center block apartment, uh, like 27th floor of a high rise. Uh, no dishwasher, no washing machine. Uh, to say that my wife was a saint uh, to stick with me through all that is an understatement. Oh, I hear you. Um, and, uh, <laughs> we lived in 450 square feet uh, for 18 months with a, uh, a, a newborn and my in-laws from China. Yeah, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely can empathize. Um, and so, yeah, ultimately, uh, I really enjoyed the, the schooling, uh, which was shocking because I had been out of school for seven years when I went back to school. I was really nervous about our, you know, am I going to remember calculus and some of these things that are important yeah. in engineering. Uh, ultimately graduated number one in my class uh, there at MIT. Um, and I decided to join Dell, uh, which uh, at the time, this was 98, you know, was like the top performing stock of the 90s. The company was growing like mad. And most importantly to me, uh, operations and, and supply chain and manufacturing were really a key part of their differentiation. Um, Dell at the time had a build to order manufacturing model, uh, a direct sales model, and was just absolutely killing it in the computer industry, literally making more than 100% of the profits for the entire computer industry. Um, and so joined Dell and, and had an unbelievable ride at Dell. I, I uh, was there for 11 years. I think I had six different jobs over those 11 years. I, I led a, a large uh, operation bringing up a new manufacturing plant. I led a redesign of Dell's supply chain and, and ultimately was awarded a patent on that supply chain. I was 
two years into Dell, uh, giving presentations to Michael Dell every month, which was definitely uh, just a huge, huge blessing. And uh, um, ultimately, they moved me to Nashville in 2004. I was plant manager for about a 2,400-person desktop manufacturing plant here in Nashville, also the senior executive for the campus. Uh, and then my last two years at Dell, I ran about an 800-person sales organization, a consumer business. Um, Dell, unfortunately, decided to outsource manufacturing. Uh, I am really passionate about U.S. manufacturing and how important manufacturing is to having a, a, just a foundation that you can build an economy on and really also driving um, less disequality, I guess, as far as wealth. Uh, manufacturing jobs can be good middle, you know, uh, yeah. middle income type jobs. And, and we need those types of jobs. Um, and so that's when I decided to leave the company. I was recruited away uh, to be COO of about a 300 person venture capital funded company, also very focused on manufacturing. I MFG. did that for about a year. Yeah, that was MFG.com. Uh, ultimately left that job uh, just both for family reasons and uh, just a, a disagreement with the, the CEO, um, kind of an ethical disagreement, honestly. Um, and then I, I, I found myself, uh, I was fortunate to be offered a job in private equity. And so in 2010, I started in a, in a small uh, private equity firm here in Nashville uh, called TVV Capital. Spent four years there. Um, and it was helpful in, in raising their third fund. Um, and through that process, got to know some LPs who reached, reached out to me confidentially and said that uh, they weren't going to invest in that fund. But if I was ever the managing partner of that firm or went off and did my own thing, that they'd like to invest in a big way. And so I thought I was going to stay there and, and ultimately kind of take over that firm. And just through negotiations with the owner of that firm, realized that he really wanted to turn it over to his son. Uh, and so ultimately left there uh, in uh, 2014 and, and founded LFM Capital. And uh, super fortunate to be able to um, pull a team together pretty quickly. Uh, those, those limited partners uh, ended up investing in our first fund and really being helpful to bring in other investors. And so our first fund uh, was $110 million. Uh, our second fund uh, we raised in 2018 I was $185 million. And uh, we currently have 10 companies in our portfolio. And I think we've done about 21 acquisitions, including add-ons. So it's, uh, it's been a great ride. What motivates you? Like what gets <clears throat> you going? Where, where it is, you, you've had this insanely successful career path. And I'm, I'm always curious to see, you know, like what is the driving force? Like, what is it, do you think growing up with, you know, being exposed to the family business, the ups and the downs, like how does that tie into kind of the path that you have taken and where you're at? It's ironic. Uh, so I think it led me to uh, originally, you know, to a very predictable, stable, you know, government job. And, you know, and then ultimately uh, I ended up going to a much larger company Dell and, and Dell, you know, was a high tech company, very exciting, but still very safe. Um, you know, if you look at my career trajectory, I've gone from, you know, the biggest organization in the world, the U.S. Navy, 
to Dell, which was 18,000 people when I got there and 80,000 when I left, you know, to a 300 person startup to, uh, you know, an eight person private equity firm, pretty clear line uh, getting smaller and smaller. And, and I think, you know, to get back to your original question, what motivates me is uh, I really love working with smaller teams. I love working with the LFM team. Uh, one of the things at uh, Dell, I went through a lot of training in both the Navy and at Dell on leadership and at hiring. And one of the classes at Dell, they taught us about the, the flight to China rule. And the, the rule was basically never hire anybody you wouldn't want to sit next to on a flight to I'm Asia. Uh, and, uh, you know, my philosophy at LFM is never hire anybody that I don't want to go on a week long vacation with. Yeah. And we actually do go on, you know, kind of mini vacations as a team. And it's a very, uh, I would say kind of family friendly culture and, you know, really try and make it a, a, a culture within the firm of, of, uh, it, where it's a fun place to come to work. Um, we go well, out to lunch your- you know, together three or four times a week. So. Well, speaking of your colleagues, uh, one of your colleagues gave me uh, a hint of a story that I should ask about, which is the tornado story. So yeah. that's all I know. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm happy to happy to talk about it. So I would say this is definitely was a life changing event, um, you know, in, in, a, in a big way that I'm motivated. I, I really like leading teams, um, but I would say uh, eventually got kind of burnt out from leading really big teams where there's just a lot more politics and bureaucracy. Um, but the tornado story is, is back in 2006. Uh, so we had been in Nashville at this time for about two years. When Dell moved me to Nashville in 2004, it was, hey, you're going to go up there for two years. This is a huge job, kind of a check in the block. And then you're going to move back to Austin, which is the mothership. And, you know, we'll be able to continue to grow your career. And uh, Long story short, I, I had just returned from a vacation. Literally, it was, I think, my first or second day uh, back at work. Hadn't even unpacked the bags yet. And I was sitting in a, a meeting with uh, my VP of HR, um, who was a senior to me, uh, plus some other uh, key people on, on a conference call. And at the time, I carried two cell phones, or, uh, and, and my personal cell phone rang, which was pretty odd. And so I picked it up. And it was a good friend of ours named Connie, who is also a teacher at our, our two older kids' school. And she said, uh, you know, Steve, I'm freaking out. Uh, a tornado came through our area. I can't get hold of Shannon. She's not picking up her cell phone. I think a tornado might have hit your house. And, you know, growing up in the Northeast, I really didn't have a lot of familiarity with tornadoes. My belief was that, like, based, based on the news, that they really only impacted you know, small houses and trailers and things like that. Um, and I said, you know, Connie, my wife's cell phone is, is a one-way communication device. She never picks it up. Um, I'm not, you know, I'm worried. I'm not worried. I'm sure a tornado didn't hit my house. So I hung it up and I said, you know, to the people in the room, it's the weirdest phone call. Uh, and I kind of explained the phone call and the HR VP said, you should go home. And I said, nah, you know, nah, I'm, I'm sure it's nothing. And you know, I finally finished the meeting and he said, no, you should go home. And I said, no, it's fine. He goes, I don't think you understand me. I'm senior to you. You should go home. And I said, oh, okay. And so I left the meeting and uh, I was kind of walking the hall. And, and ironically, my aunt and uncle were 
about, they just landed in Nashville. They were going to be driving to my plant for me to give them a plant tour. And then they were going to follow me to my house to, to have dinner and stay at our house. And so uh, I just was like, you know, I'm sure I'm going to leave. And then my aunt and uncle are going to show up here and it's going to just be a wild goose chase. So I wasn't sure what to do. And then all of a sudden I noticed that my, my, my personal cell phone had a voicemail, but it had never rang, which was really weird. And so I picked up the voicemail and it was my wife. And she said, Jackson and I are alive, but we have no earthly possessions. Come home as quickly as you can. That was her whole message. So I was like, I guess I better go home. Uh, so I jumped in my car. Uh, I let my leadership team uh, know what was going on. Uh, it was the longest drive in the world. Normally it would take about 20 minutes. Um, the tornado had kind of gone east to west uh, or west east. I was trying to go south to north and I just couldn't get above the debris uh, line. Um, and, you know, cell towers were out and people were calling me and my I was talking to my insurance company. It was just a huge blur. But um, literally at one road, I was the last car to get over a bridge. And then they shut the, the highway down because a tractor trailer had kind of been picked up, spun around the driver. Uh, unfortunately killed uh, and, and I, you know, that, that shut everything down. But I eventually got to my neighborhood. Uh, there were National Guardsmen at the neighborhood, never a good sign. Uh, I actually, when I was about a mile away from my house, I was kind of across a body of water between uh, me and the house. And I saw pieces of my children's uh, playscape. And I was just like, oh, this is not gonna be good. Um, National Guard wouldn't let me in the neighborhood. And I said, look, my wife and, and four-year-old are, are in that house. You know, I'm getting there. And he said, look, I can't tell you what you can do on your neighbor's lawns, but you can't go on these roads. So I parked my car and jogged on my neighbor's lawns and got to the house. Um, and it was, uh, it was destroyed, uh, just as like I had been told. Um, but, but ironically, if I had to list the top five best things that are ever happened to me in my life, I would list this tornado, which just sounds absolutely crazy. And if my wife or child had been injured, it'd be a completely different story. Um, but I, I, uh, I would say, you know, coming out of the Navy, I kind of had, a, I guess, almost like an Iceman type of uh, kind of physical um, mask that I would wear. I don't think I was really connecting with the people on my teams and that were uh, reported to me. And I, and I really uh, drove teams hard. I got great results. and, I, and Effective, I getting, but not emotionally available. Yeah, that's a great way to summarize it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, this just shook me to my core. I, I, I'm a very strong uh, kind of believer spiritually. And I truly believe that like God used this tornado to wake me up and realize, you know, that um, there's a lot more to life than uh, just getting results at work. I was working way more hours than I should have been, probably 80 hours a week at that point. Um, I was driving my teams harder than I should have. I had an infamous quote. Uh, the, the factory I was running was a, a building consumer desktops. And so as you can imagine, Christmas was a huge time of year for us. When we had a holiday party, we typically had it pretty early in the season because of the, the demand. And we, we had a huge backlog already at this time of year. 
And I actually asked the team, I said, look, can we force people that aren't planning to go to the Christmas party to come to work and run the factory? Um, and, and they were like, you know, are you sure that you even want to ask that question? It just seems kind of inhumane. Um, but, uh, you know, I, th I would say this tornado uh, just really opened my eyes to kind of the bigger picture about relationships and really how important my family is to me. Um, how important the relationships at work are. Uh, the Dell team uh, came out in force to help me through this very, very difficult time. Um, it almost, it was just unbelievable. I, you know, I, I, I spent, I was at the house probably till about 1 a.m. That, that first night. I couldn't sleep a lot. It was, we were sleeping in a neighbor's house with no power and there was no heat because there was no power. And I was probably back up at 6 a.m. I got to the house at 6 a.m. And, uh, you know, the Dell team, uh, it was a Saturday, you know, probably 20 people showed up. They had rented rental trucks. They actually stole Dell boxes and tape from my factory. And they boxed up like everything that could be salvaged um, by like one o'clock. Everything that could be salvaged from the house had been salvaged. They put it in a storage. Uh, and this is something I'll also never forget. I, I've always done a lot of volunteer work. I was just brought up believing that that's important. And at the time I was on the board for Middle Tennessee Boy Scouts. Um, and never in my life had I been on the receiving end of, of, of help. And I'll never forget these Cub Scouts uh, showed up at my house about noon the next day. Uh, they had made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Um, and uh, I hadn't eaten since noon the previous day. And I didn't even know I was hungry because I just had so much adrenaline going. And all of a sudden I see these, these kids in, in the Boy Scout uniform, a Cub Scout uniform, you know, giving me, uh, you know, giving me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And it was literally the best food I've ever had in my life. It was, it was just unbelievable. Uh, so. And that was that just like was another awesome. one of those reminders, like, wow, oh, yeah. what yeah, am I, I mean, doing in my life life. with my family, right. my community, who am I? What are my priorities? Can you kind of rehash, you know, what was the, the, you know, what was the context that you were growing up, you know, with a family business? And then let's just kind of unpackage that a little bit more, just kind of see how that really affected, you know, your life to where you're at today, you know, starting the firm. I understand, like, one of the things that we talked about was how it really, um, actually, no, I won't rehash it. Over to sure. you. <laughs> Yeah, I would say, you know, it's interesting. I think, I think if you're, if your parents, you know, run a, a super successful business that you are, you know, immediately drawn right out of college into kind of that same sort of entrepreneurial atmosphere. Um, you know, the business my dad ran, I would say, uh, you know, really, really good engineer. Uh, he actually helped design the first VCR, which was a game changer when I was younger he designed the camera system for the space shuttle. Um, ironically, he designed the camera systems around the world that, that actually score bomb hits. And so flying the A6 intruder, uh, once that equipment was rolled out, literally every bomb pass I made was being scored by my dad's equipment, which is a wow. pretty wild, uh, you know, kind of circle of life type of thing. Um, you know, I would say the flip side is, you know, my dad's business definitely went up and down. And, and you know, he 
you know, as I said yesterday, he's just a, a much, much stronger engineer than, than a businessman. And um, what was the actual business? Uh, as it was electrical engineering, um, but actually manufacturing the products. Uh, okay. So he would design products. And then literally my sister and I, and he would manufacture them in the basement. And so I started soldering <laughs> Wait, what? when I was like eight years old. Um, started and soldering be, like wire boards and yeah yeah the, I mean literally populate this is before um, surface mounted technology so this was through pin technology and we would literally populate the boards in our in, you know my sister and I and my dad um, you know they were actually pretty hard to, to do <laughs> and then we would uh, flip the board over and solder everything and uh, yeah we did a whole bunch of manufacturing right there in the basement of our house um, lots of video equipment, um, you name it. But even these, uh, these, these devices that helped score um, the, the bomb runs, I helped manufacture in the basement some of those, which is an, another just wild kind of thing to ultimately be tested <laughs> on that, that equipment. Um, but I think, you know, for me, um, you know, as I mentioned yesterday, I mean, one of my motivations for going to the Naval Academy was just that it was a, a paid education. And and kind of the stability and guarantee that that would give me. And so I, I would say I started my life, you know, kind of almost going to the opposite of entrepreneurism. And, you know, I always felt like at some point I wanted to, you know, start a company or start a firm. I actually very seriously considered starting up uh, a, a company when I left MIT. Uh, MIT has a, uh, an entrepreneurship contest every year uh, used to be called the, the, I think the 10 K now it's like a hundred K, but basically you compete and you, you get some seed money. And, and our, uh, you know, I worked with a team, I led the team and, and it actually did quite well. And we seriously considered doing that, but ultimately I, I was more drawn to uh, Dell and, and kind of, again, I think that stability uh, in having young kids, having gone without income for two years, I, I was, you know, a guaranteed income was, was know anything about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I've been doing the entrepreneurial path for four years. Uh, yeah. The ups and the downs. What, what was it like growing up with, you know, you said your dad was really good at engineering, but sometimes not the best at business. Like what was, like, what are some of the challenges that you guys went through as a family and with the business? Uh, I mean, our, our family kind of income definitely wildly swung. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned yesterday, Literally, you know, I, 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 when I was younger, would go around with my mom and clean people's houses. And, um, and then, you know, later we had a maid. I mean, we just went from one extreme to the other up and down uh, with his business. And um, eventually my mom actually ended up starting her own business as well. Um, and, and that was, you know, much later in life. But uh, yeah, I think just, you know, I guess I wish that my, my parents had, done a little bit more saving uh, to kind of level out, you know, some of those ups and downs, but you know, you're living it. I mean, it's hard it's so when you're running a business. Because like my wife just, uh, you know, quit her job as a lawyer on Monday to join our business full time. Wow. And, um, you know, she's been supporting our family being that stable rock as a lawyer, you know, not making, not, not at a top tier law firm, um, right, right. Peak, but that money, it's like, now we're making two or three times what she did at the law firm, but we had to keep that stability for, yep. you know, three and four years 
just so I could try to test out ideas. And we finally reached that point two years into 51 labs where it felt like a reasonable risk. Although our project-based revenue can go, you know, 10,000 a month to 75,000 a month, then down to five, then it's, and now we're trying, but those are the growing pains of a business. And we felt like it was finally a good time, but nevertheless, we're like, well, now we're in one business. How do we, you know, how do we not have key man risks? So like, for example, Jing hates doing sales and marketing calls, but cause she's very introverted behind the scenes, you know, I'll do the pitch decks, the ops, the finance, et cetera. But it's like, well, what if I'm in a coma for a month or two? Like you got to sure. be able to make calls and to walk people through it. So it's just, it makes me think about your family upbringing, just the family business and just thinking through like we, that risk. And for us, like it's very real. We've lived it. Yeah. So I think, you know, an interesting kind of story. Uh, if you fast forward to how LFM was founded, you know, again, I went from the Navy to Dell, you know, you know, the really big company, especially by the time I left into a 300 person kind of startup, you know, to a 10 person private equity firm. And, you know, honestly, LFM wouldn't exist, exist if it weren't for the, the, the people that were advising us at the time. Um, so what happened was uh, two really large university endowments pulled me aside confidentially and said, look, uh, you know, we're not going to invest in your current firm. You know, if you're a managing partner, we will. And, you know, that's the kind of gift that most people, you know, wait a lifetime to get. And, and I wasn't going to take it. Uh, you know, I was planning to stay at the, at the other firm. And, you know, it ultimately just became more and more obvious that that was not going to be a good long-term career, you know, for me. And, and it really wasn't going to be good for our investors either. Um, and, and what ultimately happened was, you know, we were working with both a fund kind of formation type lawyer who had been trying to negotiate our, our agreements with our, our firm and kind of a local Nashville lawyer. And, you know, lawyers in this industry are really expensive. And, you know, I didn't have a whole bunch of money saved up. So the first time I met with the local lawyer, and this is when we fully expected to work things out with our, 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 you know, our current firm. This was uh, probably early 2014, maybe even late 2013. Yeah. Um, and we, we sit down with this, with this lawyer. Uh, he happens to be the managing partner for the firm. I'm even shocked that that happened. Like it's a pretty you know, large firm here in town. And at the very first meeting, he said, uh, Steve, this is not going to work out. And I said, you know, what are you talking about? This is definitely going to work out. You know, this, this is, logically, it would make sense for this to work out. That's better for, you know, the owner of the firm. It's better for us. And he said, I'm telling you, this is not going to work out. Can you live for a year without any income? And this is, I mean, I've got a daughter at this point who's a senior in college, you know, a son who's a, a sophomore. I mean, not a senior in high school, you know, so about to enter college. And I was like, heck no, I, you know, there's no way I could live for a year without income. He goes, I want you to refinance your house today. And I said, you know, that's really expensive. Like, I'm not going to do that. I think this is going to work out. He said, I'm giving you an order. He, this is the first time I met the guy. He goes, I'm giving you an order. Uh, I want you to go refinance your house. And so he said, it won't cost you anything. The day you close, start the process today. And he gave me the name of a broker. So I started the process. We got the ball, you know, ball rolling. You know, and over the next month or two. Wait, this is became... your funds placement lawyer. 
No, this was actually a local lawyer in town who's more okay. kind of uh, we just wanted to make sure we didn't do anything kind of that was going to get us in trouble. Yeah. So he's more of a, you know, a, a, a litigator, I would say. Um, and so, you know, over the next few months, you know, with conversations with the, the owner of the other firm, it just was starting to become kind of more and more obvious that, wow, maybe things aren't going to work out here. And I'll never forget, you know, he was really careful. He didn't want me and my and my one of my partners to be meeting together because we were both working at the firm. And he just said, you got to be really careful. It doesn't look like you're kind of starting a new firm while you're still being paid, you know, by your old firm. And so we ended up meeting at his house on a Saturday, uh, not together. And I said to him, look, you know, Steve, I'm, I'm freaking out here. Uh, you know, if this doesn't work out, you know, I can't afford to pay you and Kim, who is our fund formation lawyer. And I said, you know, yeah, I'm going to refinance my house and, you know, the Cook family will survive a year. To put it in context, my previous firm, I'd spent three and a half years trying to raise a hundred million dollar fund. We had met with over 300 LPs and I think like three of those invested. I mean, it was just really a painful, expensive process. And Steve uh, said, leave the room. Let me have a, a private conversation with Kim and then I'll bring you back in. So I leave the room. He, uh, he brings me back in. He goes, I'm managing partner of the firm. Here's the deal. If you can't successfully raise a fund, all the work I'm doing for you will be pro bono. That's how much I believe that you're going to be able to successfully raise a fund. He said, Kim is not managing partner, but what she can negotiate is you don't owe her a penny until the end of this year. And this was like, you know, call it March. Um, and so honestly, that was what gave me the confidence to leave my previous firm and, and go out on this, uh, you know, start my firm. Uh, just, you know, incredible. He had way more confidence in me than, than I had in it's myself. It's so interesting to hear this because I think there's this maybe misconception that only the 19-year-old or 22-year-old or someone at the earliest stages of their career, you know, feels that type of crisis of confidence of um, not being sure if and how and where and when they can do something. But it's all the same experience, but just a different size and shape of a firm or a company. Oh, and I, I would argue it gets much harder, though, you know, the older you get, because again, Kids, college, I'm the sole breadwinner for the family. <laughs> I got a kid about to enter college. I got a mortgage. Mm. Um, you know, I, I was terrified. And and honestly, one other thing. I mean, I'm incredibly blessed. My wife and I have a really strong marriage, and I just knew that no matter what, you know, she would support me. She literally would be happy in a in a double wide trailer on the Sewanee River. Oh man, um, like that's that. that I'm would, glad you brought that up too. I, I didn't realize till now you're four. I look back and then my wife and I, you know, we're talking and she's like, I never doubted you for a single second that you'd find this. And yeah, you know, I, she's, she's put her foot down two times in our four years of entrepreneurship. We've been married for 10 years. Yeah. Uh, oh, never mind. Eight years, nine years. Oh my God. <laughs> um, but she said, you know, there's only been two times. One, you had a hundred days to raise the first fund or the first uh, seed round for our other business. Yep. And then the second one was you have, you know, a uh, hundred days to get X amount of dollars for the business. 
And then, um, oh, never mind. No, specifically, she said you have one week to find $15,000 legally to pay bills. <laughs> so, but, there, but she's never had doubt that yeah. we would pursue something. And it was interesting what she said. She said, in your last two years of banking, um, you know, the first year, four years, she's like, you know, I lost track. Like, who, who did I marry in those last two years? Like, you, you weren't yourself. Yeah. And she said, even though we've been through so much as a family year one, year two of this, like you're alive. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. What yeah, was my, it like my wife's go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, I mean, my, my wife has said similar things and, and, you know, things weren't, weren't terrible at my other firm, but I think you could easily kind of project that it was going to get kind of harder and harder. And, you know, I, I would have really struggled kind of working for this gentleman's son. And I just said that would just would never, never worked out. I would have felt like, you know, I was kind of failing. Um, but yeah, the, I'll tell you one other funny story. So University of Texas, which is University of Texas, which is an investment management company, or UTIMCO, second largest endowment outside of Harvard, was, was the primary, I would say, kind of sponsor, you know, for LFM. They were one of the groups that had pulled me aside. And there were two gentlemen there that kind of led private equity. And, and the more junior of the two was the one I thought was really our champion. And so literally like the week after I left my previous firm, I, I was going down to Texas anyway. So I met with uh, the, the two gentlemen and uh, we sit down at, at this like taco place outside their office. And the, the, the more junior guy says, hey, before we start the conversation, Steve, I have to share with you that, that last week I gave notice here at UTIMCO and I mean, literally, I just had in my mind, I'm going to be living in a double wide trailer, like my wife's going to kill me. <laughs> but my one champion, you know, that I thought I had just gave notice. And, and it was just such an incredibly kind of life story that ended up being one of the best things possible for us, because this guy is still just a great friend and, and still an investor. But he said, look, you know, I'm actually going to open up my Rolodex and almost act like an unpaid placement agent for you. And he did absolutely that. I mean, he made introductions to us. And the difference between when an LP who's really well respected and introduce you to another LP and when like you're trying to get in, you know, through some sort of door with some, you know, junior person is unbelievable. I mean, when we raised LFM one, I think we had maybe 18 meetings total and 13 of those wanted to invest. I mean, it was just so wow. different than when, we, when I was trying to raise for my previous fund. And I'll never forget one of the uh, groups that wanted to invest was Stanford University. I mean, an incredible group, incredibly well-respected, but they wanted to invest 100 million and we were only trying to raise 100 million. And I'll never forget the phone call where I, I had to call and say, look, you know, we're not gonna be able to take you as an LP. Uh, the gentleman I was speaking with said, you know, nobody ever says no to Stanford. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, you know, this is definitely nothing personal. I just can't, you know, take that big of an, an LP. And we've already, you know, kind of spoken for the fun. Um, and look, I would love to have Stanford again down the road. Nothing, nothing negative against them for sure. But I'll just never forget. He was like, nobody ever says no to Stanford. <laughs> it was just such a incredible experience. What are, um, you know, looking back on the past six years, you know, what, advice would you have for people kind of raising their first fund or people thinking about it, but they 
are having that struggle of God, do I leave? We're about to raise fund four. I want to be a part of that. I don't, sure. do I even want to do my, yeah, I want to do it, but damn, this is risky. Like what advice do you have for kind of, you know, emerging managers and yeah. people thinking about it? I mean, first of all, I have to say it is really risky. I mean, I, I feel like LFM was just incredibly blessed so far in both of our fundraises. I've talked to lots of other peers and they're like, you know, your experience was nothing like, you know, other, other first time fund managers experiences. You know, that being said, I would say, you know, you have to believe in yourself. You know what I mean? If you don't just, you know, have incredible confidence and belief in yourself, you know, you're not going to be successful. And, and secondly, I would say. Well, on the first really, point, on, yeah. on the first point, did you have the data to substantiate believing in yourself? Cause I know when I started debt, David, I'm like, I've never done a single debt deal in my life. Why the hell am I doing this? I have no. zero data to validate why I should be confident in doing this. So it was almost we, like, we, yeah, no, we had no track record. Um, we were not allowed to bring our tracker with, with us from a legal point of view. Um, we didn't have a pitch book. When we sat down with LPs, we literally showed them four uh, resumes and we spoke about what we were going to try and do. And that was it. It was, it was, it was kind of a surreal experience and, and still, you know, we had a lot of you know, success. And I think the big thing you have to be thoughtful about, I say particularly now, because I, th I think private equity is getting pretty crowded, is how are you differentiated? I mean, really, are you truly differentiated or are you just another middle market fund? Um, if you're just another middle market fund, unless you have some great backers, it's going to be really hard to convince people, you know, to take a risk on you. And any LP that invests with you, you know, they're, they're taking a risk and it's really like a 10 year risk because realistically they probably have to do two funds before they really get to see if, if you know, what you're pitching to them is going to work or not. Mm. Um, so I think you have to be, really confident in yourself and your ability to pull together a strong team and really uh, crystal clear in, in how you're differentiated and why that's going to be a good thing for investors. Let's shift gears a little bit and talk about your transitions in, in life and particularly as it relates to, to veterans. Um, a lot of the veterans that I've worked with for the past four years have had, you know, incredibly high performing careers for, you know, 10 years plus, and then they now have to go into the job market. And it's as if they are starting from a completely blank slate. And it's just like almost a shock of like, I have no idea what the heck I'm going to do next. Yeah. For that, for that category of person who is a high performer, whether you know, it came from like the flight community, pilot community, or from the soft community, et cetera, you know, those people I primarily have worked with for the past two, four years, like what would you guide them to think about when they're starting from what feels like square one? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I would say, you know, to be successful in the military is, is not very different than what it takes to be successful outside the military. Passion, being self-driven, you know, being motivated. Um, those things are absolutely going to carry over from uh, your military career, you know, to your civilian career. What will not carry over is the lingo that you're used to using and the specific job that you did 
probably is not going to carry over. Um, and so I think you have to get good at speaking the language of business and, and, and interpreting for a potential hiring manager what you did in the military and, and how aspects of that are going to carry over. I would say, you know, the, the, the country is probably more pro-military now than just about any time in my life. Yeah. So it's, it's not, you're not fighting really an uphill battle. You should feel like people want to see you succeed. I think by and large, most people are, are going to want to see, you know, somebody uh, from coming out of the military succeed. But, you know, you can't speak German if you're trying to get hired, you know, in America or vice versa. And, and you're just used to speaking a different le you know, language uh, in the military than you are in, in the civilian world. Um, and I think that reminds me of how or the, it highlights the importance of doing so many informational interviews in the yeah, sub yeah. industry or function that you want to do, because then when you're on your 50th informational interview in banking, then you are, then you know what the analyst sure. does, you know what the associate does, you know what the VP does, you know what the MD does, et cetera. And you are more and more perceived as part of the tribe yeah. as opposed to someone who's very high risk versus, no, I'm just going to take this, you know, 24 year old associate to come work over here. Like, why would I take a risk on you? It doesn't make any sense. Right. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, I, I also mentor a lot of people that are making the transition from the military to the civilian world. And, and, you know, a lot of it is networking, you know, and, and, and part of that networking is, is learning the new language. You know, for me, going to graduate school gave me that two years of, you know, just really uh, learning business and, and, you know, learning statistical analysis and learning finance and, 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 and how, you know, people speak in the business world. Um, but there's other ways to do it, you know, and, and I think what you said of, of lots of informational interviews and networking make a ton of sense. One of the advantages that you have coming out of the military is generally you know, unlike the civilian world, you can announce you're going to leave a year and a half before you're going to leave. And your command is probably going to be pretty supportive, particularly the last nine months or so of allowing you to, you know, to, to, to travel and, and meet with people and, uh, and, and, and network. And so I would highly encourage someone coming out of the military to maximize, you know, that networking, talking to people that are in the job function that they think they're interested in. And, um, and that, I'm just well, trying that, to learn how people speak. Yeah. And it's, I think one of the other things that I've observed is the people who tend to succeed in transition, make a decision, even if it's an imperfect decision, they're like, this is generally the right decision. This is generally the right direction. Therefore I'm going to learn everything about that sub industry and I will find my function within that sub industry as yeah. opposed to just wandering around for six to 12 months. Um, like there's one guy who had a incredibly successful transition um, named Lou Emery. Uh, he was in the teams for, I don't know, 10 plus years. But then he said he decided after this one, um, uh, he decided, he's like, I'm going to focus on management consulting. He did like 187 informational interviews. Good. Wow. 
before work, during lunch, after work, prepping for it. And he got a job at McKenzie. But he knew wow. everything he could possibly know through doing those. Yeah. And people made- respect the effort too. I mean, you know, if, if you are laser focused and you've put in the work and the effort, you know, just like I, we, we just hired a, a gentleman transitioning out of the military who's going to start as an associate next summer. And, you know, he's not the typical hire. We would normally hire someone come up through investment banking. He's an ex-Army Ranger. Um, but he's put in the work to kind of build up the skill set he would have gotten at, uh, you know, investment banking firm. And we're, we're taking a risk on him. But we have every confidence it's going to be successful. Um, that point of risk brings up another uh, idea, which is the need to de-risk. And I think a, a, a great way that vets can kind of de-risk their uh, candidacy is to do a small project for free or do yeah. like a skill bridge program or SOCOM care coalition. Be like, you don't have to pay me a single dollar. And there's literally no right. nine for a job. Can I just help you out with like a CRM project right. to, get to clean your data for a month? Like I'll do it remotely and free. And then they get in it and then they are able to see the bigger picture and like, oh, let me help with this project and this project. And then the firm's like, oh, wait, you can actually do this. Right. This, yeah, this is a no brainer. You've taken all the, all the, you've taken all the fear out of the, you know, the team that's hiring them, which is exactly what John did. You know, the, the gentleman we're hiring by interning with us last summer, he networked his way into that internship, um, had a fantastic, very successful internship. And I can say unequivocally, you know, we probably wouldn't have been willing to take the risk on him if we hadn't gotten to know him, you know, for two months over the summer. What was he actually doing on the, uh, during the internship? And actually, well, I forget the track because I know I did a fireside chat with Scott Gilbertson at Thingston Partners. That's where he met John. Then he connected him to another firm. And I think that's some of the lineage, but I forget the exact track of it. Um. So ultimately how I think John connected with us is through some sort of networking for military people. He connected with a gentleman named Michael Ross, who is uh, just was recently hired into our firm. Okay. Uh, so kind of a similar, you know, they, I would say Michael was maybe one year ahead of John and, and you know, had, had made that connection. Um, and the work that, that John was hired in to do was really more business development, working for Jessica, you know, cold calling business owners, doing research online about businesses that might be attractive for us. But what that enabled was, you know, we were actually doing a deep dive at the time on a company that sell, sells uh, military gear. And we're like, you know, gosh, John's in our office. Why wouldn't we have him kind of do the due diligence and some of the modeling on this company and so, you know, he spent a month maybe doing that work for us, which is basically what associates do for us. And, you know, that was what gave us the comfort that, wow, he killed it. You know, when he did this work for us, that's exactly the job that an associate does. You know, why wouldn't we bring him on board next summer and, and to do this work? I think another big takeaway from this in order for transitioning vets to have a higher probability of getting internships, jobs, whatever, is to be specific in the request to say, 
hey, Steve, can I help you out with, here are three ideas for small projects. Can I help yep. you out with this? As opposed to, hey, I'd love to do an internship with you. Like, I'm really talented. I'm really smart and really driven. No, like be specific. Like if you're applying to a boutique investment bank for an internship and they focus on fitness franchises, then say, you know, for your next pitch, can I do the industry section of that deck for you? Or something very, very specific. It's like, oh yeah, that's a no brainer. It takes the thinking out of it completely. Right. Yeah, and I would also say, you know, with John, um, you know, our firm had some fear that he was going to get into that associate role. And, you know, he's probably 30 and be like, wait, I'm like side by side with these 24 year olds. I'm working my tail off. You know, do, do I not get any credit for my time in the military? So, I, you know, we had real heart to hearts with John. You know, are you sure this is what you want to do? You know, do you know what you're getting yourself into? you know, don't think we're, we don't value your time in the military. You will likely promote faster, you know, than, than, than peers would because of that maturity, and because of what you, you've done. But you also have to be humble and know like you're coming in next to people that, you know, spent two years in investment banking right after undergrad and, you know, they're, they're doing this. Uh, and so, and he, you know, is very humble and, and very much, had an attitude of, I know exactly what I'm doing. I, this is what I want. This is the path I want to pursue. So, you know, that gave us the comfort of, okay, we're going for it. We've covered a lot of ground and we're probably gonna have to do a part three. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I'll, be uh, I'll, happy get, to. <laughs> I'll get this in a production and um, yeah, it'd be great to share this story. Not obviously with, you know, the finance and M&A community, but also with the transitioning veteran community through. Sure. That's um, this is, you know, it's so good to talk to you and hear, hear this story because of, you know, with what you experienced with your family and just kind of reorienting priorities to what you experienced with your family growing up and how that really influenced you today to you starting your, the firm and what you experienced going through that. I mean, there is so much gold uh, in this and I look forward to doing a, a part three with you. Yeah, no, absolutely. Happy to do it. And at some point, I hope that we can drink a beer together. I in, in, a, in, a, in an actual physical world, not a virtual world. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll be moving down to Atlanta in April. So we will be closer than where we're at here in New Jersey. Well, I'll move you halfway. I'll meet you halfway. <laughs> Sounds good. Talk to you Take soon. Take care.